Welcome to the Earth Kingdom Prairie Home Companion, a bi-weekly podcast where two nerds and a newbie watch Avatar The Last Airbender and provide all their thoughts, feelings, and opinions. I'm Kelly. I'm Mike. And I'm JJ. To recap previously on Avatar The Last Airbender, I just now realized that I forgot to write what happens previously on Avatar The Last Airbender. (laughs) I was so proud of myself because normally I'm writing these recaps up until like five minutes before we do this. And I finished mine um, way early and I was feeling really proud of myself. But apparently I forgot to do that part. So what happened previously on Avatar The Last Airbender basically is that we got a lot of backstory into Zuko and Aang and what brought them to where they are. And... Yeah, that's about it. Things just really got really intense <laughs> previously. Yeah, basically, you could just summarize the past, the last episodes as just being baby Zuko, baby Zuko. and Aang's backstory. Pretty much, <laughs> yes. And, and the blue spirit, which is my favorite. And the blue spirit. Mm-hmm. Yes, and the blue spirit. So stuff happened last time. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. But let's stop looking to the past. Let's look to the future. What's what's coming down the pike? There you go. What is coming down the pike? So today we are doing four episodes of Avatar. And we are doing episode 14, The Fortune Teller. Episode 15, Bato of the Water Tribe. Episode 16, The Deserter. And episode 17, The Northern Air Temple. So why don't we start uh, with episode 14, The Fortune Teller. All right. The trio meet a renowned fortune teller in a small village, and both Aang and Katara are quick to believe her when she gives them happy predictions in love. Sokka is skeptical and has every right to be. Aunt Wu has predicted that the town will be safe from a nearby volcano, but really it is about to erupt. Rousing the townspeople from their complacency takes doing, but our heroes manage it. And along the way, Katara and Aang begin to see one another in a new light. All right, so first thoughts and opinions. I love how Sokka is just the voice of the frustrated atheist in this whole episode. <laughs> He's so great. He's like progressively getting more and more pissed off at how stupid these people are. Well, my other favorite, what's that line? He says, like, can your science explain how it rains? He's like, yes, 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 yes it can. Yes, it can. Oh, Sokka. Yeah, I had that written down as one of my favorite lines, too. Um, I actually don't have a lot of specific notes on this episode. It was really enjoyable. It was really funny in a lot of ways. Um, You know, kind of inconsequential, though, in terms of the larger story that we've got going on. You know, this uh, is another episode where we start to see a little bit of... um, like, I guess it's not called shipping if the show is doing it itself, but like some. <laughs> well, I suppose it's canon. Yeah, shipping there you go. That way. Some more romantic undertones. Um, Aang's crush on Gatara is really one of the forefront um, things in this episode. You know, he is going to the fortune teller to seek love advice, um, and. The fortune teller, Aunt Wu, tells him that, you know, he'll be with the one that he loves if he follows his heart. And so he kind of spends time trying to impress Katara, who is completely oblivious 
meanwhile, there's another little girl in the village who is obviously very smitten with Aang, and he is completely oblivious. Um, and Katara, for her part, is really interested in her future, um, particularly in love, but also it kind of like Katara kind of like gets a little bit obsessed, and she, you know, starts kind of harassing Aunt Wu. <laughs> for constant predictions about everything, including, like, what to have for breakfast. Um, which is... Uh, which is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and then, okay. you know, she's very interested in her love life, and she's told by Aunt Wu that she... that the man that she is going to marry is going to be a very powerful bender. And then kind of at the end of the episode, I think it's Sokka... Is it Sokka? Yeah, it's Sokka. Describes Aang, and he's like, wow, that kid is a really powerful bender. And Katara's like, say what? Like, and it, like, (laughs) it kind of dawns on her, like, oh, he is a powerful bender. And like, what does that mean for my fortune? (laughs) They kind of beat you over the head with it. He says it twice in a row, too. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like she didn't hear it the first time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I'm pretty much taking this as confirmation that Ang and Katara are going to be the romantic pairing of the series. Um, even though Aunt Wu's predictions are, you know, somewhat dubious in terms of their veracity. Um, you know, I think the show is clearly at this point leading us to see that down the line. I'm of two minds of it. I'm not against it. Um, I don't really care. And I, I'm someone who ships like a lot like hardcore shipper in books and in fandoms and so this one is kind of like whatever like I don't really care either way I don't hate it but I'm not on board I guess it's nice because at least at this stage in the show and I don't know whether or not this will change but at least at this point they are still very much you know kind of children um they're not quite into that like full-on adolescent like crazy hormonal stage yet and so the romance is really almost tertiary I don't even want to say it's secondary you know to the main plot it's really kind of a very out there subplot that just kind of they bring up every once in a while but we're not really spending a ton of time on it uh which I'm okay with because again I don't really care right now (laughs) Well, it's like a middle grade, you know, like a middle grade novel where, the, you know, romance is sometimes in them, but, it's, you know, not a very important part of the plot. Right. Um, but I can really yeah. ship middle grade romances. <laughs> it de- depends yeah. on the on the romance, I think. And so, so yeah, like, I'm just kind of whatever about it. What about you, JJ? How do you feel about this ship or this coupling I feel like if I told you, I'd, I'd, I'd okay. give spoilers. Okay. All right, all right, all right. So we won't go there. <laughs> when we get to it, when we get to it, I'll, I'll okay. talk more in depth about the the ship. It has a name. Obviously, it has a, it has a portmanteau name. It's Katang. Um, or the one I like, which actually came from this episode's Cloud Babies. <laughs> That's kind of cute. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> That's kind of cute. Air and water, you know, they make clouds. I, I mean, I actually... I tend to skip this episode on rewatches because it doesn't have a lot a larger larger bearing on the plot, right? But this one actually held up better, I think, 
than I expected to. It was very sweet, I think. It was very sweet, very cute. I just, this, like, the way Aang looks at Katara and that kind of, like, romance vision. Right. <laughs> yeah, so he makes, he makes her a necklace, right? Because Zuko has her necklace that it was her mother's. And so Aang makes her a new necklace and gives it to her. And then she puts it on and she asks how it looks. And they do that, like, the romance filter again. Like, the light gets really soft. And it's, you know, she's oh, just... There were she's, like, pretty too. and... Plo- yeah, she's pretty and posing. Yeah. And the, but I love Aang's response, which is... She's like, oh, how do I look? It's and like, he's like, uh, you mean all of you or just your neck? Like, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. But, I mean, you know, but... And yeah, he's super awkward. It's so cute. It's so cute and awkward. And... There's just, like, a lot of little character moments in this one, and particularly Aang. Like, I do have a huge soft spot for Aang. I, I love him a lot. Um, it's more of, like, a big sister kind of way, but I am very, very fond of, of Aang. But just, like, seeing him try to put the moves on Katara is hilarious. Yeah, He's, like, so papaya. Yeah. <laughs> Even better is that he's getting advice from her brother, and it's terrible it's such bad advice. And even just the way he's animated when he's trying to be, you know, aloof. He's just, like, very, like, languidy. Like, he's... Yeah, he's always got something to lean on. Yeah, and he's just really, like, stretched out in the animation. It's really funny. And, of course... That just reminds me of my so-called life. I like the way he Oh, my leans. God. He's always leaning against stuff. <laughs> We can't. I. I mean, I could just sit here and quote all of my so-called life in entirety right now. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think this episode um, served. I mean, like obviously, just a little bit of expansion here and there of like the world. But this is like another example of they showed you a few new bending things that aren't like crazy powerful, but they're kind of cool. You know, Katara made an umbrella out of water to block the yeah. water, um, and then they bent clouds to change the fortune in the sky, you know, at the end. Little things like that. Oh, and the platypus bear. Yeah, yeah the platypus bear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it just like the visual comedy in this episode is pretty great, too. The um, the fact that, like, Appa comes up behind the platypus bear and then it just drops an egg. Right. <laughs> or there's that scene, too, where I think Aang is, has... You know, he's trying to be aloof to Katara, and she just kind of brushes him off. And there's just, like, this long beat of silence, and then, like, this duck comes over. Yeah. And just quacks at him. <laughs> <laughs> just like, a lot of little things like that. That, was, that there, I mean, that, like I said, I, like, I tend to skip this because it's not plot-heavy, but there's a lot of really great... Really great character building stuff in here. Yeah, I thought the little girl, uh, Mang, is her name, I guess? Yeah, um, yeah. I thought she was awesome. I thought she stole every scene she was in. Yeah, she was really funny. Because, of course, you know, Katara is being aloof toward Aang's affections, not on purpose, but just because she's genuinely oblivious. And then Aang is being oblivious for her affections. You know, it just kind of trickles down. It's really funny. And she's like, I've kind of been stalking you. And he's like, okay. it's funny I actually really like Aunt Wu because they could have easily made her like a really dumb caricature like basically like the matchmaker in Mulan yeah who's like this huge caricature Mm -hmm. but 
the Aunt Wu kind of isn't, you know. When she's telling her fortune, she actually seems pretty genuine. Mm-hmm. And she's not a con artist either, because that would be the other way to go with it is that she's a, a she's scamming everyone in exchange for, you know, money or whatever. And she's not really trying to tell fortunes. But Katara says at one point, you know, she doesn't even charge. She does it free of charge. Yeah, I gave her all my business. And he's like, she doesn't even charge. <laughs> I know. I mean, she did do one true uh, fortune, which was Sokka's. Mm-hmm. Your future is full of struggle and anguish, most of it self-inflicted. Yeah. Well, like, in a weird way, right, most of her predictions do come to pass. You know, come true. The, sto- yeah. the, the town is not destroyed by the volcano. You know, Katara most likely will marry a powerful bender. Aang's heart will lead him, you know, to his love. It's like all of her stuff is kind of most likely going to come to pass, but not necessarily because she's a great fortune teller. Or is she? I don't know. It, like, yeah, I guess that's all open to interpretation. Um, well, there's that scene where Sokka confronts the guy with the red shoes, and he's like, Aunt Wu told me I'd meet the love of my life. You know, I'd be wearing these red shoes when I met the love of my life. And Sokka's just like, so how long have you been wearing them? Ever since she told me to. And he's like, of course you'll meet the love of your life when you're wearing those shoes. Like, little things like that that just cast enough doubt on yeah. Aunt Wu's ability. Somebody called Sokka Mr. Science and Reason Lover. <laughs> In the episode, which not only made me laugh, but it made me think of a South Park episode where they did the same thing, except it was Mr. Scientist, and they just, like, make fun of the scientist all throughout the episode as if, like, that's not really a thing. Like, he's he's a unicorn expert or some, some shit like that. Anyways. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's not a lot else I can really say about this. There's, like, just, like I said, a lot of really cute moments. Yeah. I do love that Aunt Ruth's love fortune for Aang, because she didn't think of one clearly, is, like, clearly the equivalent of what you get in a fortune cookie. <laughs> you trust your heart and you will be with the one you love. Mm-hmm. And it, it did make me laugh kind of hard. <laughs> she's just, And she's clearly doing it just to make him feel better, because, you know, he's so disappointed he didn't get a love fortune. And it was like, oh. bless he's so cute well and she has this whole big like doom and gloom like portentous fortune for him and he's just like yeah but i know all that already like (laughs) i don't care about that stuff (laughs) so yeah i mean on the whole this was cute it was pretty comedic it just you know it wasn't um it wasn't as frustrating for me as some of the other one-offs that we've got i mean this one definitely doesn't really advance the plot any but I wasn't mad at it the way I've been mad at some previous episodes, <laughs> I guess. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's pretty much all I've got. Does anybody have anything else? Mike, is there anybody notable in terms of voice acting in this one? Um, yeah, so there's there's two um, new people that are of note. Uh, one is, her name is Sai Chin, and she voiced Aunt Wu. Um, she has been in Casino Royale. She was one of the high rollers at the table with Daniel Craig. Um, she was in Memoirs of a Geisha, Joy Luck Club. She was... I, the thing that I know her from is if anyone watches Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., um, one of the uh, one of the actors on there is... God, what is her name? And the character's name is Melinda May. And Sai Chin plays her mom in an episode, and she literally comes to pick her up after S.H.I.E.L.D. falls, and, like, she has nowhere to go, <laughs> so she calls her mom to pick her up. 
Um, also on that list was a three. <laughs> this was just this just made me laugh. Uh, she did a three episode arc on Grey's Anatomy as a character named Helen Rubinstein. <laughs> All uh, right. The, the other one, uh, the other uh, actor in this episode, really quick. Uh, her name is Jessie Flower. Yep. And I didn't realize this before I looked it up, but she's going to become a major cast member in season two. Um, she shows up in the episode called The Blind Bandit as the title character. So, like, when you hear her, when you hear her, like, saying things like, her hair is so manageable, it's, like, particularly out of place if you know what character she's going to end up playing. Yeah, the the directors, not the directors, the creators said that they really liked her performance enough to bring her back for another character. So. Oh, cool. Yeah, you'll, you'll hear her again, um... But, oh, the other thing I wanted to mention about Mang's romance of vision, like her version of Aang. You know, like in Aang's vision of Katara, she's very pretty and she's posed all nicely. But in Mang's vision of Aang, he's just like... <laughs> like hunched like over. Slum- yeah, hunched over. <laughs> just doesn't look all that attractive. And yet she's still starry-eyed about him. <laughs> I was like, that's kind of... <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, there's like I said, there's not a lot I can say about it either. But it is just cute. <laughs> it's really cute. All right, should we move on to the next episode then? Yeah, let's move on. Okay, so this is episode 15, Bato of the Water Tribe. Sokka and Katara are unexpectedly reunited with a member of their tribe and friend of their father's. The siblings are overjoyed to experience a taste of their old life again, but Aang feels left out. Afraid that they'll abandon him to search for their father, Aang intercepts an important message and hides it from the group. Meanwhile, Zuko hires a bounty hunter to track the Avatar down. So, I kind of cheated and I texted Mike about this episode the other day. (laughs) Oh yeah, I totally misunderstood your question too. I thought you were asking me about who played Jong Jong. I mean, not that the answer was any different. Right, no, yeah, we'll get to that in a minute, but... um, Yeah, so I texted Mike the other day about this episode when normally we don't talk about it um, until then, and he was not surprised by what I had to say. Basically, what I said to him and what I'll say now is that there were a lot of things about this episode that I really loved, really, 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 really loved, and also I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have to kind of agree with that assessment, actually. Well, why? I would like to hear yours before I go off on my whole big spiel, so. This one did not hold up well, actually, on the second time around, Um, mostly because of the characterization. I think all the characters don't act like they would be acting normally, (laughs) and it really bugs me. Yes. A lot. (laughs) I mean, there are things that there are character growth moments that are important for like Sokka. Obviously you find out that is that their dad's not dead. You know, he's been at war for two years. It's not that he's dead. He's just been at war, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You see June, who's the bounty. I don't know if they give her a name in this. They do not. And it drove me crazy. I had to look at it. It it said online. And so I'm guessing now that apparently she's going to come back because you just said spoiler, but, (laughs) but uh, no, they don't name her in the episode, which is crazy making. (laughs) Um, and I really, 
This is the one that drove me the most nuts. I hated Iroh's characterization in this episode. It does not make any sense. I don't... It doesn't make sense. They suddenly turned him into this creeper, and I was like, right, but... Yes, suddenly he's that, like, that stereotypical anime old man who's just, like, a perv for no reason. But only sometimes. Like, I definitely have that as a note. I have a note. (laughs) Iroh, question mark. Dirty old man, question mark. (laughs) 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 So I definitely picked up on that, but... I didn't, I couldn't understand, so his relationship to, now that I know her name is June, I'm just going to go ahead and call her June. So, she shows up, and she's awesome. I'm totally badass. She's riding this horrific, like, steroids, like, star-nosed mole thing that is horrific. <laughs> and, um, you know, she's a bounty hunter, and she's going to use this horrible hell beast to track down the Avatar for Zuko. And... You know, like, Iroh is definitely, has moments in this episode where he's like, it's like, it seems kind of pervy. Like, it doesn't go quite so far as to do, like, the eyebrow waggle or, like, you know, anything like that. But he, like, makes a bunch of comments about how impressed he is. And there's, like, a bunch of weird beats that just seem really, like, dirty old man-ish. But then, toward the end of the episode, where in the big fight scene, which we'll talk about separately on its own because it was great. But, um, during this fight scene, Zuko is lashed by the monster's tongue, which causes paralysis. And so Zuko's taken out by that. And Iroh just is like, you know, standing there. And then the monster does the same thing to June and she gets taken out and Iroh, like, screams in anguish when oh, right. she gets yeah. taken yeah. out. And it's super weird because that moment does not fit with the pervy old man that he is elsewhere. And then immediately after that moment, he, like, catches her and she lands on top of him. And then he does this, like, <laughs> like wink, like, sort of a thing. Well, the, and Zuko's like, Uncle, I, I didn't, didn't see you get paralyzed, you know. And he's just like, ah, this, like, cute. Well, what makes it worse is that you see Jude give him this, like, dirty look. Yeah. And I was like, oh. But, and so, like, those moments are back to back in the episode. But they don't fit together at all. Like, when he was, like, shouting in anguish when she gets taken down... I was like, oh, like, is she his daughter? Is she related? Is there some relationship here that they're not, like, illuminating that's going to come back around later? Like, I don't understand what is going on with all that. And it is a, it's a mess. (laughs) And, like, I don't know, maybe there is no other relationship. Maybe he's just meeting her for the first time. But if so, that's really incongruous. Like, those two moments right up against each other don't make any sense. It's all just super weird. Especially just he's not been established in any way as being a pervy old no. guy. And I and like and the the way Zuko reacts to him, it's almost like the character of Zuko is like, Uncle? Like, who are you? Right. And there's this great moment earlier, so the bounty hunter, along with Zuko and Iroh, are they're tracking um Katara Aang and Sokka based on Katara's scent, because Zuko has the necklace. And the monster tracks by scent, and he can see, like, the scents in the air as different colors. And so the bounty hunter is going through all the places that we've recently seen the trio go. So they are were at that apothecary with the 
like witch lady and her cat and you know they go to all these places and they go to the village and aunt Wu is there and she and Iroh have this great like kind of like banter sparring moment which is amazing because I ship the two of them forever and ever <laughs> and I thought that was great and that makes sense and it was like cheeky and playful and age appropriate and like everything about it was great but then all this other stuff with june it was it ah it was just weird yeah i agree this one did not hold up well also the animation didn't hold up well in this one everyone is off model and it drove me crazy yeah, yeah, I felt like the Aang being left out stuff was so like everybody was being a dick. Like that's like everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, it just absolutely everyone was being a dick. It just yeah. came out of nowhere because, like, I agree that they were being a dick, and like there were times when he was like trying to involve himself in what was going on, and they just were kind of shutting him down because he didn't get it or whatever. But like from minute one, he is just deflated that they have found this person from their past and that it brings them so much joy. And I'm, I just don't believe it. Like, I just don't believe that he would feel that way or act that way or do those things. Like I, it just, it is so out of character for him in my opinion and what little I've seen of him so far. And everyone, like you said, is a dick. And then of course he does that thing (laughs) that I fucking hate, which is where you withhold information, at least for him, he's withholding information for himself. He's not doing it because he thinks it's what's best for Katara and Sokka. When Katara does it early in the season, she's doing it because she thinks she knows what's best for Aang. And that's not quite what he's doing here. So it doesn't quite hit all my buttons in that way because you know, I, it's still horrible and annoying that he does it, and I still don't like it. But it's not that same, like, unique frustration that it has if he had been doing it because he thought he knew what was best for them. Instead, he's doing it really selfishly. He wants to control what they do. He wants them to stay with him, and he doesn't trust them not to abandon him. And so he hides the message. Um, but yeah, it's all just weird. And then... We get, there's so much great stuff in there, though. Like, of course, all my notes are full of baby Sokka, baby Sokka. Because right. he's, <laughs> he's so precious and adorable. And I actually did start to tear up a little bit. I got really excited at the opening of this episode because I really expected it to be great. Because I thought June was amazing. And I thought these flashbacks with Sokka were wonderful. And I was just expecting this really fantastic episode and was really disappointed. Um... You know, but you see Sokka with his father, and that's a wonderful relationship, and it was so nice to see an affectionate father-son relationship, where the father was like, I understand that you want to come with us, but this is what you have to do right now. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't about like, oh, Sokka, stop crying and, you know, stiff up her lip or whatever. Yeah, no, there was none of that. And he like hugs him and it was just, it was really lovely to see such a tender um, father-son relationship portrayed in fiction. So I loved that. Um, I got weird vibes from Bato in the beginning. Like in the beginning, I I thought Bato was going to be like a traitor. Like, and was going to turn on them or something weird. But then it became very clear at a certain point in the episode that that wasn't true. Um, 
but I loved the the ritual of the ice dodging, you know, and that Katara and Sokka never got to have that experience, and now they're being given that opportunity, and they do it, and they excel, and it's, like, such a great, wonderful moment. Um, yeah, it's, like, a really cool rite of passage. This is, this is, like, waterbender bar mitzvah, and it's way cooler. <laughs> yeah, you know? Well, and I actually really like that scene, although the animation is really bad. It's really bad. It is really clunky and not dynamic, and the boat doesn't move the way the water moves. It's just driving me crazy. Well, I think anyway. they spent all of their money on the fight at the, at the end of the episode. Yeah, I know. Which but, was but, glorious. Yeah. I mean, it was great battle, but like this particular ice dodging scene, I wish they had spent a little bit more money. But I did like, what I liked about it is it showed Sokka's ingenuity. In that he gets his sister to waterbed, he gets Aang to airbed, and he, he basically takes the resources he has on hand and kind of makes a calculated gamble that pays off. And I think that does a lot about Sokka as a character. Like, even though he's frequently the butt monkey, as I've said before, <laughs> he's still allowed to grow and learn and change and prove himself, you know, in ways, you know, because Katara and Aang are both benders, he proves himself in ways that don't involve them involve bending at all. And I, I, I do love those moments when they come for Sokka. I just wish that they had happened in a better episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was really, I don't know. There was lots to love, but yeah. yeah. So, well, let's talk about the big battle scene, um, which you can tell they spent the most money there. It was beautifully animated. I thought. Yeah, it really was. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And I thought there were lots of interesting things about it. So, um, you know, it's Aang and Zuko again, one-on-one. And we've seen them fight before. Uh, but I feel like, as it should, with each fight that we get, it escalates. It's longer, it's more arduous, it's more intricate. You know, that segment where they're um, on top of the well... And they're each, you know, yeah. dancing around the rim of the oh, well, right. trying not to go in, um, was just really wonderful and fascinating. And you see how well-matched they are and how, even in this little span of time, how much they've both improved at what they do and become more confident in what they do. The whole thing, there's one scene where, um, Aang, you know, they've both been thrown to the to the roof. They've clashed, and each of them has been blasted backward onto opposite roofs. And Aang, we get a shot of him, like, kind of coming to and looking up, and then it pans to Zuko, who's just running along the rooftop, like, kind of, like, pulling up a fire blast to shoot right at him, and Aang has to get out of the way. It was just, like, it was really dynamic. It was really um, great. I loved it. We see Appa get really aggressive for the first time ever. Yeah, that was that was really cool. Yeah. Um, so the fight between him and the animals, the the name of the animal is it is a Shershu, but its name is Nyla. Um, and it, I looked up, I was trying to look up the definition of Shershu, which I did not find, but I did find that that word is the name of one of the writer's dogs on this show, um, and they just named the mole monster after their dog. I mean, it moves like a dog. It's got the haunches of like a German shepherd. Yeah, it's it's like it's like a giant fox with like a mole's head. 
In like a weird tongue. It was a weirdly really, sure, yeah. she yeah. was kind of just like weird. My note says <laughs> my note says this beast's nose hands are terrible. <laughs> um, yeah, so I had some questions about Appa. So mostly up until now we've seen Appa be really docile, you know, he's just kind of this laid back, big, furry, lazy puppy thing, uh, sky bison. (laughs) And here we see him get really aggressive and fight for the first time. And I have two things, I have two notes kind of about it. And one was that at one point he's like slamming his beaver tail down and he slams the beaver tail, the beaver tail down and it you know, knocks everybody over. And then it looks like he, he airbends, for lack of a better word. Like, it doesn't look like, oh, that's just the air whooshing from when he brought his tail down. Like, it's animated in the same way that Aang's airbending is animated. So, does Appa airbend? <laughs> yes. Okay. And this is... How do you think he flies? <laughs> well, he's just magic. I don't know. <laughs> well, how like how does anything happen in this show? Well, this is getting ahead a little bit. It's yeah. not exactly a plot spoiler, but you find out that the humans learned to airbend from four mythical creatures. So each nation got their bending skills from a particular animal, and in case of the air nomads, it was actually the sky bison. Okay. So that is a little bit of the world building tidbit that you get later in the show, but um, yes. Appa does does airbend. Very cool. So that was the first time I at least noticed that happening. Apparently he's been doing it the whole time with the flying. I mean, he flies. <laughs> yeah, but, you know. Still, that's, that's pretty perceptive. I mean, I don't think I would have put that together. I definitely didn't, like, think about it that much until they told me. It's... Like, yeah, it's because of the specific way it's animated. Like, I don't, it's not blue exactly, but like, there's a quality of the way they draw the air when they are showing Ang bend it. And mm-hmm. they applied that same technique to this section. And so. Yeah, and it's also, it, it's not just like his tail. You can, like, his, if, if it were just his tail moving them, they wouldn't have animated the air lines, essentially. But, like, when Aang moves in airbends, you see the air lines, like, spiral out from any of his movements. And that's the same thing. You can see that happen, too, when Appa does his moves. So I, I actually, when I first saw this, took it as Appa air, airbending as well. Yeah. So I thought that was really cool because I didn't know that animals could bend. I thought that was a human-only sort of a thing. And then... The other note I had about that was not necessarily... So, he... Appa gets um, struck by the tongue of the sheer shoe monster, uh, which would normally paralyze most things, and he doesn't become paralyzed immediately. And my assumption was just kind of due to his size. Like, he's just so big that... Mm, That's what I assumed, too. I just figured it would take a few... Because eventually he, you know, keels over... Um, But I didn't know if there was something more to that that I was missing or if it was just he's so massive that it would take more poison or whatever. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's just his size. Yeah. Yeah, it this this one did make me go, Oh, Appa. Right. I actually wrote down stop whipping Appa. (laughs) I know. (laughs) 
just like, oh, I poor know, baby. <laughs> I know. Oh, and right next to Stop Whipping Appa, I wrote Smell Fight, because that's when they took out the perfume and started, like, <laughs> waterbending perfume at the yeah. whole monster. Which, again, was Sokka's idea, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're it right. And so, it's also another demonstration of something else Katara can do. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, you know, I think there were great things in this episode, but on the whole, it was really frustrating to watch because, like JJ said, I felt like everyone was acting out of character. Everyone's motivation for why they were doing what they were doing made no sense. Like, it just was a really muddled episode. I loved the flashbacks with Sokka. There were some great one-liners, so... At one point, June is like, oh, angry boy and Uncle Lazy. Like, great <laughs> right. to see you. Um, I love that she also wins her arm wrestling competition. I, I know, she's great. She's up there with Suki as, like, my new favorite people. But it's just that I, I can't, I don't have the time to gush about how much I love her because everything else in this episode is dreadful. <laughs> it really, I think... This one felt very simplistic in a way, especially when you compare that to the next two episodes. Everything was so simplistic in the way everyone reacted to things, the way, especially like, for for example, Aang gets the map, you know, and then he crumples it up and hides it, which, uh, I don't like that. But then moreover, when Sokka finds out, he loses he's like, well, it. we're going to abandon you. And... I was just like, oh, this is so simple. It's such a simple problem that they're past this point, you know, their character way. They develop this trust and rapport. Like, they would be past this point. They would be talking about it. They just, yeah. It just drove me crazy. And even in that just moment, like, oh. like, even if Sokka explodes in that initial moment, Bato starts to say, like, hey... You know, maybe you should think about Give it. Give the kid a break. <laughs> and Sang just ex- uh, Sang and um, Sokka just explodes and is like, "Katara, are you with me or not?" And she is like, "Oh, I'm with you." And they leave. But very shortly thereafter, Bato and Sokka essentially have the conversation that they should have had in that moment, where Sokka realizes, like, this is how I felt when my father went off, and this is how Bato feels when they had to leave him behind because he was wounded, and now here we are leaving Ang behind, like. I think you even could have had that moment where initially Sokka is furious and just explodes in that way. And then through that conversation can very quickly come to realize, you know, how all of their experiences mirror one another. I feel like they should have put that scene right there. When Bato starts to interject, they should have had that conversation (laughs) instead of, you know, pushing it off. And I don't really understand why Katara agrees to go with Sokka. I mean, I understand because she's her brother and she's upset that Aang lied to them as well, but at the same time, she seems to be... But previously, she's always been the one who's been Aang's biggest defender. Right, and let's look at this from all sides, and she's the sympathetic one and the empathetic one, and you would think that she would be like, yes, what Aang did is wrong, but he's admitting it to us, he's telling us, you know, about it, he is, you know... Yeah, it just everything about it was just a huge mess, pretty much. I really like that people are making fun of Zuko for having a girlfriend, which is Katara, and that's not the case at all. Like, everyone is giving him shit about it. Even June is like, is that your girlfriend? He's like, no. She's like, yeah, she's way too pretty for you anyways. I ship it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Ah, uh, so you're a Zutara fan. I'm not, I mean, I don't know that I want, you know, canonically the show to go that way, which obviously it won't anyway, even if I want it to. Um, but I see the appeal of that pairing, for sure. Um, I also love June and Zuko, and they have a great, another great little exchange where he's like, how stupid do you think I am? And she's like, pretty stupid. Or Sokka, rather, is like, pretty stupid. Um... <laughs> It's just really, yeah, I, I, I at least think Katara and Zuko is, um, have a more interesting relationship, whether it's romantic or not, than Katara and Aang do. Because I think tension is always interesting. I would agree with that. Um, I would also say this too. The creators are master trolls (laughs) with, with the, the Zutara thing. They really are. If you're looking for it, they troll you so hard with this. They just kind of trot it out a little bit and they take it away. That'll be fun. It's kind of amazing. That'll be fun because I know (laughs) that there's no way it's the end game. It won't. The show will not end up on that couple. And so I can enjoy it purely for the trolling that it is. Um, they they have there've been some epic trolls at like comic cons and everything. So I mean, it, it's quite funny actually. <laughs> all right, so is that all we have for Bato of the Water Tribe? Um, Mike, do you I, have got, anything? Yeah, I mean, uh, this episode, well, all these episodes are kind of like lousy with talent, um, and we're starting to see repeat performers from previous episodes or in this bracket, future ones. Um, I want to do June last because she's someone I can gush about. Um, top of the list, Bato is an actor named Richard McGonagall, who I know as the buddy in the video game Uncharted series. His name is Vic Sullivan. He's like, oh, yeah, he's like the guy in the with the cigar and the old yeah. fashioned. I pistol. love the Uncharted games, by the way. They're great. They're a lot of fun. Um, he also narrated Five Hundred Days of Summer. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. Um, let's see. Amy Hill was the superior. Um, she's the grandmother on American Dad. Scott Menville, who I think is who you were asking me about, Kel, about, um, was it No, that's, no, that's somebody in the next episode that I was, that I was talking to you about. Oh, right, yeah, sorry, I have that on the next page. Anyway, No, no problem. (laughs) Scott Mendel uh, played the messenger. Um, he's Robin on the Teen Titans. Okay. And I found out that he played Mati on Captain Planet. Oh, heart heart. Well, I was going to say, the one from the 90s? Yeah. There, there's wow. been no remake, right? There's just the one Captain Planet. No, I, they did a funnier die live action one where Don <laughs> Cheadle was Captain Planet. That was pretty good. Yeah, it sounds I, pretty good. I, oh, we shouldn't have mentioned a remake because you know there's going to be one down the pipeline right. at some point. Ugh. Um. Um, real quick, two more two more names. Um, Andre Sogliuzzo is a very Italian-sounding fellow. Um, he played Hakoda, and he's also played Boomy. Um, okay. And he narrated Bubba Hotep. And lastly, June is voiced by Jennifer Hale, who... Most people, or most people who play video games that I know, know her as the female incarnation of Shepard from Mass Effect. She's Femme Shep. And she's awesome. 
She's also done Killer Frost and a lot of DC animated things. And uh, the role that I found out about this week was she was Rosalind Lutess in the third Bioshock game, which is a game that just, like, rocks me to my core every time I play it. Is it Infinite? Yeah, yeah, Infinite. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, mm. And I also found out, bonus, she did the voice of Samus in the Metroid Prime Hunters series, or Metroid Prime series, there's three of them. Not that there were a lot of lines, I think mostly she just screamed when she got shot, but it's cool <laughs> to know that that lady, who I think is awesome, you know, nice. did a thing that I like. Oh, she's also <laughs> Avatar Kyoshi. Okay, yeah. And that's Very all cool. I got on them. Yeah. Move along, shall yep. we? All right. Okay. Episode 16 is The Deserter. Eager to see some firebending up close, Aang drags the others to a Fire Nation festival, but his disguise doesn't last long. They are able to escape with the help of a Fire Nation deserter and are brought before Zhang Zhang, a master firebender who no longer serves the Fire Lord. Aang convinces Zhang Zhang to train him, but to his new master's disappointment, Aang doesn't take his lessons very seriously, and in his carelessness, he ends up burning Katara, who discovers she has a new power of her own. Admiral Zhao was also a pupil of Zhang Zhang's, and when he catches up to the gang, he demonstrates just how dangerous it is to let the fire consume you. So... Well, what is it, what do you guys think about this one? Well, I really liked that it started with a, like the fire festival. I just liked the idea that it was it was like a cultural festival of firebending that wasn't totally about imperialism. You know, there wasn't any statues to the fire lord that people were worshiping. None of that. It was just like people with masks and like a magician doing a fire show on stage and like being pissed about Aang upstaging him. Here's the thing I had about that. Which was, so far, every village we've seen, every town, whatever, has been in the Earth Kingdom. Except this one. And I was like, is it because this is a, a colonial city? This is a, col- this is a colony of the Fire Nation in the Earth Kingdom. Oh. And it's never explicitly spelled out for you, but I'm pretty sure that's what the implication is. I think you're right, because they are heading north, yeah. and on the map, that's... I mean, that's, that's the still way... the Earth Kingdom, yeah. Right. They've, they spent pretty much... Every, like uh, aside from the time they go to that fire island to talk to Avatar Roku, they've spent every single stop in the Earth Kingdom. So to me, this was an example of a Fire Nation colony. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's pretty solid. Yeah. Again, so many adult themes, which is why Bato of the Water Tribe drove me so so just made me so mad. Because again, you can this show can treat. Characters and subjects with such nuance and delicacy, and then you have that. So yeah. I was just like, oh. well, I was wrong. There was some imperialism. There was that puppet show where the Fire Lord was like burning <laughs> an Earthbender puppet alive. Well, I thought that was amazing because that's obviously a callback to the old Punch and Judy stuff, right? Yeah, I was and say. the uh-huh. way the way that that would normally go in a Punch and Judy puppet show would be that you know the rock would get thrown and she'd get hit and it would be like ah and that would be the joke but they subvert it because the joke is that he just turns around and blasts the other one away so it that was i laughed i thought that was funny um another really subtle thing that i saw at the beginning of this episode that i really appreciated so when they 
come upon the village and they see the poster for the Fire Nation Festival and decide they want to go, they kind of walk around to the other side of the pole and there's a bunch of wanted posters there. And that's where Aang's wanted poster is. There's also a wanted poster there for the Blue Spirit. Yep. 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 <laughs> Which I as just, well as Jong Jong and his yep. weird assistant guy. Yep. Yeah. Which I, I liked the little Blue Spirit uh, touch, the idea that they're still looking for whoever that was. Right. Um, I can't think, like, the, in the festival itself, um, pretty much, like, the only Chinese character you see anywhere is just fire, <laughs> which I thought was really slightly lazy. <laughs> it's literally just the symbol for fire. They're really into everywhere. fire. I mean, that's kind of it's their like, thing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I like that they yeah. fire flakes. I mean, just a little... There wasn't a ton going on in this episode, but the little bits that they throw in, like, for flavor, the idea... I, I want to know what fire flakes are, what they taste like. I want to crunch on fire flakes. Yeah. I just assumed they were, like, chili flakes. Yeah. <laughs> that they just eat. Yeah, they just eat. They like heat. You know, it's fine. Well, then there's a great moment, too, when they first show up and they all buy masks and Sokka buys this mask with a big happy face and Aang buys, you know, kind of the tragedy mask and Katara just looks at them and then wordlessly just switches. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so she gives Aang the happy one and and Sokka the dour, you know, grumpy one. I just thought uh-huh. that was great because they don't say anything. It's completely wordless. and She just is like, nope, this isn't right. <laughs> I thought there was like I, it wasn't they didn't really bother to explain it but there was like a really cool little powerful moment when Aang goes to meet Jong and asks him to you know train him in firebending and Jong refuses and suddenly Avatar Roku was there like breathing down Jong's neck like are you calling me weak yeah like, that was really cool also strange like I don't fully understand the mechanics of it but okay but I thought right. it was cool. <laughs> like, it didn't seem to be like Aang was possessed, because the last time Roku manifested, it was, you know, it, he possessed Aang, kind of, and Aang was overcome with his spirit or whatever in order to break out of the Fire Nation temple. And that's not what happened here, but it was almost like the spirit of Avatar Roku separately appeared to Zhang Zhang without Aang's knowledge. Well, it's kind of weird because in in the cycle of reincarnation and Eastern thought, it's the same soul. So he right. is Avatar Roku. Um, but I, I, I was a little confused by that because I couldn't tell if Aang did it intentionally. Because the next scene is, you know, he's like, it's Avatar Roku and he's like, in all my past lives I've mastered this and you can't teach whatever it was. You know, he's getting Zhang Zhang to teach Aang, but... And then, like, the next moment you see Aang, and he's like, okay, fine, I'll teach you. And Aang's like, oh, great. And I really couldn't tell if Aang actually did that on purpose or what it was. I was kind of confused. I'd never considered that. I just assumed that he was oblivious that it had happened. I just kind of assumed that this is, these are indications that Aang's spiritual side is progressing, whether he's aware of it or not, and also that, Zhang Zhang is an old master. He's probably connected to some kind of firebending thing that, you know, Roku also has going on. I I just imagine that it's not it's not as significant of a thing. Like, the, the mechanism of how he showed up probably doesn't matter that much. Yeah, I mean, it, it didn't have a huge bearing on it. I was just slightly confused. Because you get, you do see 
much more explicitly the spiritual side of being the Avatar, particularly in the next season. Um, so this is kind of the first hint you see of the whole past lives thing and how they interact with Aang and how Aang, you know, deals with that part of himself as being a soul that's been constantly reborn. But it's just kind of like almost a little bit out of nowhere for me in this particular episode. It's kind of like, where, where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit strange. I had some notes about that too. Um, yeah, I mean, this is, so this whole story, right, is kind of like a classic story of the, the arrogant student who, you know, is, is reluctant to listen to the patient master and, you know, that reluctance or that, you know, desire to move faster than is wise leads to terrible trouble. You know, it's kind of like a morality tale, um, in that way, a story that's been told many, many times before. I feel like this does, this is in character for Aang. It does make sense that, um he would want to get to the good stuff. You know, he's like, but when can I shoot fire out of my fist? (laughs) (laughs) When do we get to that part? You know, that does, um, I think make sense and, and feel true to character for him. Um, and also, you know, he hasn't had a teacher in so long because he's been entrapped in ice for a hundred years. And then ever since then, he's just kind of been on his own with his friends who all defer to him because he's the most powerful. And so he hasn't really needed to be a student again in a while. And so I can see how that would kind of chafe him a little bit. Um, at the same time, you know, you just kind of want to kick him a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I wonder if if he would have just continued that behavior if the other, like, crappy student hadn't shown up and threatened everybody. You know what I mean? Like, Zhao shows up and reveals that he used to be Zhang. He was Mm -hmm. Zhang's previous impatient student. And would Aang... I mean, not like Aang would automatically go down the dark side, but he'd probably still be dicking around. Like, Well, I think it... I think burning Katara is what. Yeah, I think burning Katara is really what scared him. And if we look at it mirrored, so previously we had Katara injuring, or not injuring, but she, as a result of trying to become more powerful, she lashes out at Aang. And we see that be a really sobering moment for her. But for her, it only lasts temporarily. And then. You know, she wants to continue trying to learn more advanced bending techniques. Whereas for Aang, I really think that regardless, even if Admiral Zhao had never shown up, I I think that burning Katara for Aang would have made him realize that he was out of control. And I believe that that would have been it for him. I don't think he would have had that same, um, I don't think he would have felt that temptation again, the way that Katara did. Yeah, I think it's also slightly different. Like, Katara injured Aang out of temper, but, you know, she was careless because she was upset and frustrated. But Aang injuring Katara, he has been expressly warned by the Master over and over and over again that this thing is hard to control, and it's not just you that you're going to hurt. You're going to hurt everything around you. And he doesn't pay attention, and he doesn't pay attention, and he doesn't pay attention. And, of course, the thing he does is injure the person 
one of the two people he cares the most about. So I think this is, is a slightly different situation there. Yeah. Um, and I think what Aang says, he's like, I'm never learning firebending again. I think he's serious. He's, he's like, I'm done. I can't do this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it was a really dark moment for him. I think that to kind of jump around a little bit. Um, so Admiral Zhao arrives and we learn that he was Zhang Zheng's previous pupil who did kind of like go down the dark side path. Um, and they fight and Aang uses Zhao's lack of control to essentially win the battle. Um, you know, Zhao ends up burning his own ships down because he's just kind of carelessly shooting fireballs everywhere as Aang distracts him and riles him up. I actually went back and I watched um, the previous episode in which we see Zhang, Zhao, Zhao rather, um, fight, which was, I think, the Southern Air Temple is the fight that he has with Zuko. I went back and watched it because this felt like a character retcon to me, and I wanted to see whether or not it really was. And for all intents and purposes, it is. Um, there's nothing... It, it, in that battle scene, it's very clear that Zhao is a cheat, that he is dishonorable, that he you know, is a shitty person, but there's nothing to indicate that he doesn't have control over his bending, that he is, there's nothing to indicate that he's reckless, um, with fire bending in the way that he fights and the way that he uses fire. I believe everything else about him in this episode, you know, I believe that he's haughty and that he sucks and that he's dismissive of his master and you know all this other character stuff and i understand why it was attractive to make him the former pupil because you want that example of what could happen to ang to be truly horrific and right. admiral zhao is uh, because we haven't met the fire lord yet admiral zhao is truly the worst character in the series so far and so I get that desire to make him fit in that mold, but I it feels like a little bit of a retcon to me. See, I guess I didn't see it that way as being he's out of control with his bending. It's that he's unable to control his anger. And if you notice in that fight with Zuko, after Zuko has legitimately beat him, he lashes out. Yes. And... It, to me, that was. It's not about I, he can't control his bending. It's about he can't control his his impatience and impulsiveness, similar to the way Aang acts in this episode. Aang is an impulsive, impatient person, and he's not going to wait. And I think that was the lesson Zhang Zhang was trying to impart, not that he can't control his fire bending, because. Zhao is a perfectly competent firebender. It's not that he can't right. control and I, that. And I agree with you that, that, that it is about that emotional component. And that Zhao does demonstrate a lack of that in that first battle. So I guess if you... I, I guess I can see it to some extent. 
but I don't, mm, I don't know. I just felt really, I was so, it, it was so strange to me that I went back and I watched the first one and I felt like the fighting was so drastically different. And I guess maybe it just could be that the Avatar pissed him off more than Zuko did. Although I find that hard to believe. <laughs> but it could I think be. That the, uh, I think that the thing that is different about this fight from the Zuko fight is that at some point, you would assume that he would notice that he's destroying his own his own ships. his own boat. Yeah, yeah. Like they, they were really laying that part on a little thick. It was really know? yeah. It just it just seemed like a little bit. I don't know. Something about it felt a little bit forced to me, and a little bit. I don't right, know. Like if you're gonna do it like that, then at least throw in like one of the ships was full of you know powder kegs or you know something where. One right. good blast would really screw him over quick, you know? Right, where it, yeah, yeah. That would have been better, I think, if there had been some kind of flammable or explosive that he inadvertently right. ignited that then did the larger work of destroying the ship. Yeah. Yeah, because he's destroyed three ships. Right. And it's only at the end where Aang's like, hey! And he's like, Ta-da. dang it! Right. <laughs> yeah. And you're kind of like, you haven't noticed this entire time. You sh- you've just set all your ships aflame. Like, <laughs> and he's just kind of like, dang it. It's kind of, mm, yeah. It's a little weird to me. Yeah, and especially because also that, that so if we, if we accept the lesson Zhang Zhang's lesson as being, you know, I think at one point he says, like, don't let the fire consume you or it consumes everything in your path. If we're taking that to be, like, your emotions, your anger, your hatred, your superiority, you know, to consume you, um, then then the damage from that should be internal. You know, it, that's that's what twists your soul and blackens your soul, not necessarily like an outward manifestation of destruction. And we know that Zhao is, you know, morally bankrupt. So he's already gone to that extreme. Um, but just something, just something about that final battle scene just didn't quite, it, it felt like they were trying to jam two puzzle pieces together that don't go together. And like, yeah, it was a little lazy or something, or sloppy. Yeah. It, it just wasn't as tight as a lot of the other episodes tend to be. Yeah. And also I think just, it just kind of because this episode didn't have a really huge prolonged fight scene, bending scene in that regard, they had, you know, they have the escape scene from the festival itself, which is a big action sequence, but there's not a huge bending fight sequence and maybe that's why they're like oh we gotta throw in a, a bending battle in yeah. here somewhere um, and oh look Zhao is coming up the river and that's kind of the perfect place to have one I I mean there are things about this episode that I did like about what it's teaching Aang about patience because mm-hmm. um, he's you know he's a young kid and he's a powerful bender and he's like well I want to do this you know because clearly he picked up water bending like that I mean he right. you know so he's clearly quick on the draw so he's obviously going to be eager to try this new bending thing and then he's learned that his own impulsiveness and impatience really has real world consequences so that's the lesson you want to take away from this episode and then you have this fight scene at the end and you're kind of like but that fight scene is actually imparting a different lesson. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Than the one he's supposed to take away. So they don't quite gel as well. I agree. I agree. And so then, the other thing that we discover in this episode is Katara's healing ability. Yes. Yeah. And so when she is burned by Aang, she 
goes to put her hands in the water, and when she does, when she removes them, they're healed. And then later on, she's able to take some water and put it on one of Aang's injuries and is able to heal him as well. And the explanation that we get from this is basically Zhang Zhang just saying, you know, really advanced waterbenders is this, this is something that can manifest in a really talented waterbender. And he says, you know, it's a power that I wish that I had because fire is destructive and, um, you know, water is healing. Um, and so <laughs> there's also a funny kind of a thing about it too, where Katara's like, I guess I've always been able to do this. And Sokka's like, well, thanks a lot for a lifetime all of right. healing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> thanks for all the first aid you never gave me. Yeah, yeah, you know. two, two fish hooks on his thumb. Cause he tried <laughs> Thought to use he could the undo the first, first hook with the second one. Yep. Yeah. So that was really funny. I thought it, I had some interesting thoughts. And again, these are just kind of like large sprawling, whatever thoughts. So Zhang Zhang's whole thing, at first he doesn't want to teach Aang because he says, first you have to master water and earth before I'll teach you fire. You need those other two things. You need to learn earth to be grounded. You need to learn water to be, um, you know, to heal and to be fluid. Adaptable. Yeah. Yeah. Before you can, safely master fire. And then of course, you know, Ruko, uh, Avatar Ruko insists that they begin training at once. And so they do. And Zhang Zhang's whole sort of thing is that he was a master bender and he looked around at the destruction that he had wrought and, you know, had like a crisis of faith essentially. And was like, I don't want to be a part of this. I, I don't want to live this life. I don't want to do these things. And he really blames, um, firebending essentially for that, not like the bending itself, but the, you know, when he's talking to Katara about how healing is so wonderful. And I wish that I had that ability, but fire is only destructive. That got me thinking because of course, right now, our main association with fire is destruction. The fire nation is, um, you know, committing mass genocide on the other tribes and nations. Um, they are, you know, ruthless and cruel and horrific. Um, and so fire really does, it really is about destruction at this point in the series. But when we step back, um, you know, it, there says that at one point the four tribes lived in harmony before the fire nation attacked. And so, there must have been something else about fire before it became this terrible thing. And you think about what we use fire for. You use fire for warmth. You use fire to cook food for sustenance. You use fire, you know, there's all these positive applications. Fire is energy. Fire is light. Fire is warmth. So there's a positive side to that that has just been obliterated in the course of this war. And I just find that interesting. I think, I mean, obviously, as we've mentioned before, the show has to have a big bad. Yeah. So it it has to be the Fire Nation. Although I think they do a pretty good job of showing that not all Fire Nation people are evil. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, you know, they... 
they have a megalomaniac who's the fire lord right now. So, um, and I think and this is something else the show will get into. It gets into the dark side of bending. Um, the sort of, you know, if you take the positive aspects to each bending discipline, there's also a really dark side to all of them. And you do get to see that explored a little bit as the series goes along and the sort of ramifications of what you can do, this powerful thing that you can do. You can use it for good, but you could also use it for bad. Mm -hmm. And it's not just fire that has this. Right. Well, it's, you know, with great power comes great responsibility and (laughs) the dark side (laughs) of the force. And, you know, this is a tale as old as time. You know, that's to be expected. Um, you know, I just, I just think it's, I just think it's interesting. And I guess, you know, so we, we know what I know anyway, what the scope of the series will be, which is, I'm assuming the scope of the series is Aang learning all these bending techniques and, um, defeating the Fire Lord. I know we have this deadline coming up of the comet and by the end of the summer, Aang needs to learn all these things, but I don't think that's happening at the end of season one um yeah so we know that you know the the defeat of the fire nation and the fire lord in particular is the ultimate you know end goal of the series um but obviously the hope would then be that the fire nation can rebuild under perhaps a less insane leader (laughs) (laughs) and once again you know become a contributing member of society and eventually restore um peaceful relations with you know the other tribes that's kind of like the long game i guess unless they're all completely eradicated which is also a possibility (laughs) (laughs) but it's just interesting to think of like what would that look like like what would a peaceful fire nation look like like what applications does that bending have if not to be strictly destructive so i just in the blue spirit where ang was saying about how he used to have that friend from the fire nation yeah like what kind of shenanigans did they get up to you know what did that look like in the fire nation yeah because there wasn't a war i just think i just i like that the show invites these questions yeah yeah i think it does a really good job of, of, of doing that. And, you know, well, I'll, I'll, I'll explain to you about the, the deadline there. The season that they're in right now is winter. Okay. So yeah, that's right. It does they say cycle, winter. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. They cycle through. So the next season will be spring and the following season will be summer. So that's kind of how you have the structure there. Um, and they've also very neatly tied it to the elements too, because winter, you think of snow and ice and there's water. Although they have not done any waterbending in this season. (laughs) Because I gotta tell ya, I thought they were gonna, like, spend one or two episodes to get up north and then learn some waterbending. And that has not happened, my friends. No. (laughs) No. Uh, I mean, it's not that they don't waterbend. Katara learns, like, something new every episode. True. And isn't the next episode called The Waterbending Master? Yes, it is. <laughs> well, maybe that's, but that's for next time. That's not this time. Yeah. I don't watch episodes ahead. I have no idea what's coming. Um, yeah, I think you know. I think it's. I think it's interesting. I think it's exciting. I, I'm. I'm here for it. You know. I. I am ready to see them 
master all of the uh, all the elements. It's just taken a different <laughs> path than I, I guess I expected. I mean, it's, it's it's kind of your traditional sort of quest journey. Aang has all these different stops that he learns different things about. And it's not just Aang. Of course, Katara learns things and Sokka learns things. And, mm-hmm. you know, they all learn things on their way to, you know, achieve their quest. So... Mm-hmm. Two other things that I wanted to mention in this episode. One is uh, my one of my favorite lines, which again comes from some Fire Nation lackeys. So <laughs> the last time that we saw them, I kind of had, I loved their little, is it buffalo or bison or what's the difference or whatever kind of thing that they had. And then this one, um, Admiral Zhao arrives at the Fire Festival and it's, you know, been a disaster and the Avatar's gotten away. And they're like... But other than that, you know, it was really great. No fights. Death was way down. (laughs) I don't care about your crime stats. (laughs) So I loved that little line. And then the other one, this is um, the thing that Mike has uh, mentioned a couple times, but we're finally there. So I did text him when I was watching these episodes and... The character of Che, who we didn't really mention at all. Right. <laughs> we didn't really mention him at all, but he's just this really derpy guy who gets them out of the fire festival, essentially. He's like Zhang Zhang's, you know, disciple or whatever, and he helps the gang escape from the um, from the fire festival. He's really derpy and really just weird, and I don't really get the point of him at all, but he's there. Uh, and I swear he sounds like Matthew Broderick but it's not Matthew Broderick who does the voice but it <laughs> so she, sounds she like him me, right so she texts me asking me like is the guy from the episode Matthew Broderick and I don't know why but I assumed she meant Jong Jong and I was like no it's an Asian character actor yeah and I was it's like I don't think so <laughs> but okay I mean the guy who plays Che is also not Matthew Broderick yes but he but does sound a little bit it like It sounds him. a lot like him. <laughs> it does. It really does. You just picture Ferris Bueller in your mind. <laughs> I honestly think his only purpose is to tell the story of Zhang Zhang about how he, you know, hated the destruction he had brought upon the countryside, so he deserts the army, and he's the first person to ever do it. And then Che is like... <laughs> I was the second person, but nobody second. ever writes about that. <laughs> I know. That was funny. That That's was one of my funny. favorite lines. <laughs> and, and also, he's not really a bender, right? Because he's got all those bombs and stuff that helps them escape. So yeah. he's just, yeah, he's you know. Yeah, not a bender. Yeah, he was pointless. They should have cut him and just had Zhang Zhang be the one to rescue them. Um, they left him behind at the end of the episode. He was just wandering <laughs> the shore like, where did everybody go? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, yeah. This one was also... Just weird. Not 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 like the previous episode where it was just a hot mess, but this was just another one where I was like, well, this doesn't need to be here, and this could be cut, and yeah. But it was pretty good. Yeah. I liked it. Yeah, I... This one had some flaws, as, as we discussed in, in depth. But I, I think, obviously, the two things that I would have taken away is, I guess, just how Aang isn't ready for fire. Right. And this kind of, this will come up again later in, in sort of slightly unexpected ways, I think. And also, Katar has a new ability. <laughs> right. Um, and I think that's kind of the biggest takeaway you really get from this episode. 
It doesn't necessarily advance the plot forward, but it does develop the character somewhat and then kind of undermines it with a big fight scene at the end, so I don't quite get (laughs) why. Yeah, that... Yeah, I wish they'd cut that. I wish that it kind of ended on the, you know, Aang injuring Katara thing. And even if if you wanted Zhao to come to come and confront his former master, you could have had Aang and Katara and Sokka, you know, bail. You know, they get word that the Fire Nation is coming and they leave, and then the Admiral faces off against Zhang Zhang alone, and you could have that you know, be the, mat- the battle between the the master and the pupil sort of a thing. If you wanted that there, I think that would make more sense. And also, I think, actually, what would make the most sense is that you have, you know, after... It really, like, after Aang fights, or accidentally burns Katara, then you have Zhang Zhang fight Aang. Yeah! <laughs> oh, right. To me, that makes the most sense, because now he, Aang is facing off against the Master and realizing that he, you know, doesn't have the skills or the patience or whatever to, you know... I, like, there's a lot more that could have been done if Aang was fighting Zhang Zhang instead of Zhao, but... Mm. Yeah, there was a lot of... Again, I feel like kind of the theme of this group of episodes is that there's a lot of potential there that's just not being realized, which is a little unfortunate. Yeah. And maybe it, it too <laughs> probably pales in comparison because the final two episodes from last week were really great. And so, yeah. you know, maybe anything after that is going to kind of seem a little bit less than. But, yeah. So that's what I've got for these ones. Anything Anything else? Any other vac- actors besides not Matthew Broderick? Uh, yeah, so <laughs> there's uh, just like three people of note. One we already had in a previous episode, Scott Melville, who uh, was the fire magician in this one. He, I already said he played Robin in Teen Titans, and he was in... Do you guys remember the show Mission Hill? No. He was like the younger brother. It was a cartoon. Anyways, doesn't matter. Um... The guy playing Zhang Zhang, uh, his name is Kion Young, and he was already the evil fire sage in the part two of the spirit world, whatever it was, where they go to the island and meet Roku. Um, he's also played Silver Samurai in a bunch of Marvel games and Mr. Wu in Deadwood. And for Matthew Broderick, who isn't Matthew Broderick, his name is John Kassir. He played Che, of course. He's also uh, pretty well known for playing the Crypt Keeper in all of the Tales from the Crypt things. Wow. <laughs> yeah, he's got, a, he's got actually a few pretty interesting um, <laughs> credits. One, uh, he's played Deadpool in a few video games also. He played Ray Palmer, the Atom, in what I just discovered exists, a 1997 live-action Justice League movie. Which looks terrible. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> and lastly, I also discovered that he was the voice of Buster Bunny from Tiny Toon Adventures. <gasps> oh man! Yeah. So the Crypt Keeper and Buster Bunny are the same guy. <laughs> and Che. <laughs> yeah, that's everybody I got. Nice. Yeah, I don't really have anything particular. Um notes from this episode aside from the whole thing about firebending coming from the breath um there is particularly in yoga there is a particular type of breathing that they call fire breathing Mm -hmm. or agni prasana 
Um, Agni, of course, as we mentioned, is a Sanskrit word for fire. So, and it is to intended to create heat in the body. So, you know, they are kind of drawing on those sort of elements when they're talking about bending, and you know, so they've done their research. I, you know, I give them props. Yeah, for that. I like that leaf technique. Like, just keep the ember burning. Don't get, don't let it get to the edge. Like, that's such yeah. a small thing that I, I don't know. Like, I never would have thought of that on my own. About control mm-hmm. and, and everything. Right. It's, it's really, you know, they, they do get the philosophy part of it pretty pretty good. Yeah. So. yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. let's move on. Do we have anything on. else or shall we move on to... Okay. Yeah, let's go. Okay, so episode 17, The Northern Air Temple. Ankatara and Sokka reach the Northern Air Temple with hopes that some airbenders may still live there. The skies are full of people, but they're not benders. A talented boy named Teo impresses Aang in the air, but Aang's respect fades when he lands and realizes that Teo's inventor father has desecrated the temple while adapting it for non-benders. And worse, he is making weapons for the Fire Nation in exchange for the safety of his son. But it's not too late to do what is right, and everyone teams up to stop the Fire Nation's attack. Mm. Yeah. So what do you think? Um, I had... A lot of thoughts about this episode. So this is um, a great example of having disability be visual, visual, not visual, but yeah, but visible is the word I'm looking for. Having disability be visible in your story and included in your story while not making that the issue. Um, Teo essentially has a wheelchair, but it's never the point ever it just is it's just presented as fact um and then that's it the fact that he's in the wheelchair isn't the problem of the episode it's not the plot of the episode it's not what the episode revolves around um and so that i really liked very much i liked the character of tail a lot um you know he's kind of this um so their whole their whole society from from what I can gather in this episode is that the air, the northern air temple like the southern air temple that we saw in previous episodes is empty. Uh all the air nomads have been wiped out by the fire nation and so this temple was just sitting there unused. And Teo's father is an adventurer or kind of like a mad scientist sort of a character. And he has renovated things and made it accessible, not only for his son, but for other people who are not airbenders to be able to live in this abandoned temple. Um, And in a lot of ways, that was really interesting. And so the main emotional thread of this episode is that Aang is horrified by all of these changes because this is a place that is sacred to him and to his people and it is being completely destroyed um you know so that these other people can live there they have no respect for its history or its purpose um you know it was a sacred place and they are just kind of coming in and taking it over without any regard or respect for any of that. And of course it's incredibly painful for Aang because it's been a hundred years, but not for him, you know, for him, it's only been a short amount of time since he was here visiting. 
And so he doesn't have that distance um, from it. And eventually, you know, toward the end of the episode, he comes to see that these people have given the Northern Air Temple a new life and a new purpose, and he kind of um, gives them his blessing and is glad that they're living there and glad that, you know, people are flying again and that they have spirit, even if they're not benders. Um, So he kind of evolves on that stance a little bit. But it's a difficult episode to watch in that sense because it's really emotional and they're talking about really big important things here. I, I don't know. I was very sympathetic to Aang in this particular episode. Yeah. Um, because here, and it, what I actually thought this was, was kind of, it doesn't, it's really about technology and modernization. If you think about it and the sort of double edged sword that modernization and technology brings. Because first you have all the good that the inventor does for his son, you know, flying and all sorts of stuff and all these sort of technical innovations, you know, like the elevator and whatever. But it it comes at a cost. It comes at the cost of the desecration of this holy space for Aang. And not just for Aang. He's, you know, actually wantonly destroying uh, somebody's culture, basically, without any thought or regard. I mean, of course, the air nomads are dead, so... There's that aspect of it. But, you know, there's no respect for whatever came before, essentially. Um, because that scene where he walks in, he sees Teo's father's workshop and all those pipes. And, you know, they've all like, you know, it's it's really awful and kind of horrible. Um, and the other, of course, the other part of the double-edged sword is the fact that he's using that technology and he's selling it to the Fire Nation. Um, so there's that kind of double-sidedness of, you know, it's not it's neither good nor bad. It can be used for both. Mm-hmm. And I like that the show doesn't really take a stance on it one way or another. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a lot of... Uh, this felt a little to me like the obligatory steampunk episode. Yeah. Because this, <laughs> this kind of show feels like it could slide that direction very easily. And I feel like they just wanted to give it a nod and be like, this is a thing and we acknowledge it. But that's not what our show is totally about, really. Like, it's about you know, tradition, you know, struggling against advancement and things like that. Um, one of the things that I really liked about this episode is we got the first good look at the Fire Nation siege weapons and their war tactics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when they invade the, the temple, those those crazy tanks that with the grappling hooks and the, the, you know, backup grappling hook just in case, and you flip them over and they right themselves. I mean... That's those are advanced siege weapons. Those would be advanced today. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's also you could see how easily if they when they put their mind to it, how easily they could have they conquered everybody else. Yes, because they have these incredible weapons, basically. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's really interesting, you know, and. Teo has that line, I can't remember the exact line now, but he basically says to his father, you know, no matter what you've done for me or what good you've done for the people who live here now, how can I respect you if you are also doing this terrible thing, if you're also selling weapons to the Fire Nation? Um, You know, and, and that is such a advanced observation, I guess, and like such a nuanced understanding of what's going on and that 
you know, a person can do good things and also do bad things and, you know, do bad things for good reasons. And, um, you know, it's, it's because it reminded me in some ways of there's a scene in Harry Potter where they go to find Luna Lovegood and her father's there and he's kind of stalling them and, you know, whatever. And and he, he turns them in, he turns them over to the death eaters, um, in, in exchange for trying to find Luna, you know, he's trying to find his daughter who's been taken from him. And, you know, he's, he's doing a terrible thing for, for a good reason. It's out of love for his daughter. It's not that he's evil and is siding with them and, you know, wants to turn Harry over. It's that he loves his daughter and wants to ensure her safety and wants to be reunited with her. And yet he's doing this awful thing that is unconscionable. And that's kind of the situation that we get here where whatever Teo's father's motivations are in terms of keeping Teo safe and giving him these advantages in life that he wouldn't have otherwise, you know, he's doing it at the cost of this reprehensible thing, providing these weapons to these people who are using them for genocide. Um, Yeah. It's very Nazi sympathizer. Yeah, and the the episode just calls it right out and is like, this is wrong. And you, you know, it, you can't, you can't wave that away. You can't make your choices seem more noble than they are. I don't think he actually even tries to make it more noble than it is either, I think. Um, it, it's, there's something about the way he he talks about his decision. It's not that... I mean, he regrets it. You can see that he regrets it, but I don't think he tries to spin it as something noble either. True. You know, he's like, this is something that I had to do because I wanted to protect my son. Um, And you can also see that he doesn't think about it too hard because they're in this isolated temple and, like, the top of a mountain. Like, who can get up there? He doesn't have to face the realities of what his actions are. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't have to face the consequences of what his inventions have done. And you... This is kind of a spoiler, but not really. But you actually see this theme come up again. Um, you know, what you create, what you put out in the world, despite your best intentions, can be used against you. Or can be used for harm. I mean, they kind of teased it at the end of the episode. Yeah, you can see. Yeah, yeah the, they have the, the ship. They, they have the war balloon. So, yeah. um, you know, so the whole thing about the ambivalence towards modernization and technology moving forward it's both good and bad and they just, they present both sides, I think pretty equally and with quite a bit of nuance and they say, look, this is just what it is. That's the, you know, kind of the price of progress is this is it. Mm-hmm. It can be used for good and for bad. So I, I, I thought they did a really good job about it. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked it. Um, it's like, it's an episode like this that just makes me really angry about Bato of the water tribe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that episode should have been so much better. I mean, there's so many other things I love about this episode, which is, I love that Sokka is coming up with all these ideas, mm-hmm. and he's, you know, he's really proving himself to be that, you know, that kind of scientific inventor, and you know, kind of a person. I really love that. Me too. I thought it was funny about the, the natural gas vents, mm-hmm. which is true. Oh, right. We do that. We, because natural gas doesn't have any odor or smell, right. 
we actually today put that sulfuric smell into natural gas so we know when it's leaking into the air. So I thought that was really kind of great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't even um, think of that, but you're absolutely right. Yep. Um, I just kind of love that they're kind of fanboying over each other. Like, you're great. Yeah. No, you're great. No, right. you're great. <laughs> I loved that, too. And the whole scene at the end where he's presenting the war balloon to everybody else, and he's like, how do you put a little hot air? And Katara's like, I wish we knew. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, many, so many little good things here that I really, really liked a lot. Or like little funny lines. Like at the very beginning when they're telling the story about the airbender, and Aang's like, I laugh at gravity all the time. <laughs> Gravity. Right. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite was show that bald kid how it's done. <laughs> I really liked that the inventor guy not only had three fake fingers, but his eyebrows had clearly been blown off. <laughs> like this was a trial and error kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah, like the finger safe knife sharpening, and he's just like pops the fake fingers <laughs> off and starts like. Oh. <laughs> I do uh, want to know how he got the Metroid, what I'm going to call from now on, the Metroid door open. Um, the, oh, the, the... The giant airbending. Airbending door, yeah. That, like, once they got it open, there was all this Fire Nation weaponry inside. Yeah, that was a little bit of a plot hole, I feel like. <laughs> well, it's also, like, how does the Fire Nation guy get there? He, like, shows up via trap door. <laughs> Right, in a pulley. <laughs> and you're kind of like, um, I guess so, He there must be tunnels or whatever. I mean, yeah. you kind of have to extrapolate out. I guess there must be a tunnel into that room where all the this, things are stored and the Fire Nation just kind of come in directly in and out of that room to get the weapons because otherwise everybody else would know about it. Also, so, they just let that guy leave. Like, after Aang like, jumped out, was like, deal's off. He was like, fine, whatever. Uh, and he just, like, went down in that dumbwaiter, like, back to wherever he came from. <laughs> it's true. He just kind of sinks back to <laughs> Right. And then then the siege starts. So, good move, everyone. Yeah. I really liked 4 candle. 4 candle, yeah. As a time-telling thing. There were a lot of really kind of clever things in here, like little inventions and things like that. Um, I was actually, before we saw, before today we started recording, I was watching this episode with commentary, um, cause they had commentary with Dee Bradley Baker, who does the voice of Appa and Momo and kind of all the different animals and the sound design people. Okay. And they're just kind of talking about the sound design. And, um, one of my favorite things about the candle, cause it gives off those little pops to tell you what time it is. They got like pop rocks. <laughs> Like and the candy? Not the candy. Oh, the, the little the throwing little, snaps? Yeah, whatever those were. And that, that's the sound that they got for okay. the... Funny. They um, actually had those yeah. in a previous episode. Aang threw one at Momo, and then Momo stole a bunch of them and started throwing them at Aang. Yep. Oh, and the bugs. I just remember the bugs. <laughs> They're flying around. like, keep your mouth shut, and you might swallow a bug. Oh, yeah, you might, you might swallow bug. And then Tara's like, <laughs> She's like, <laughs> bug. Um... Other things that I thought was kind of interesting, they had a little documentary feature, too, that I was watching. It's like this little plastic lip thing with, like, a little whistle sound in, in the mouth. And they use that little plastic lip toy for, like, a bazillion sounds in this episode. 
like the sound of the ropes, the sound of this, the sound, like the sound of the wind whistling. It's it was actually really interesting to kind of see what they do for the soundscape. I kind of want to see what whatever that thing is. It, it it's just you know it's like it's like a really cheap party favor essentially is what it is. It's oh. you know they they look like red lips that you just kind of stick your mm-hmm. into your mouth, but it's got a little whistle in the middle, okay. and it kind of makes this like high pitched whirring whistling sound. Um, cool. And uh, another thing is like they found this like literally found this like silver spiral whirly gig with like a little like wire star on the top that literally looks like some tchotchke they picked up at like a street, you know, sale or whatever, and they use it for all the magic sounds in the show. <laughs> oh, really? Because it's got this doing, like this like high-pitched kind of silvery doing sound. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was actually really cool to kind of watch that featurette um, and the commentary about the show. So Nice. Yeah, I've just got like two things. <clears throat> Excuse me. One is, what is this slime? Where does this come from? Yeah, those slime bombs and stuff. Yeah. I assumed it was like compost. Oh, all right. I guess or that sewage. Makes sense. <laughs> and the other thing is when Sokka dumps the furnace over the side and detonates all of the natural gas, driving the Fire Nation away, I'm pretty sure he kills a lot of people. Yeah. Like he, it looks like he blows up like a third of the mountain. Yeah. <laughs> they get really hand-wavy about death in the show. Like, the incidental death of the show. They get really hand-wavy about that. Yeah. Wow. If you don't like see the, a body, like it scene, doesn't count, right? That's it doesn't count the TV rule. <laughs> so far, only Monkeyato has died on this show. There you go. Yeah, and that was a... Well, we don't see him die. We just see his bones. Right, so we know he died. horrible and awful. <laughs> it really... That's, that's terrible. Yeah, I think... They, yeah, they do. They get very hand-wavy. They're just like, eh, you know, the explosions and avalanches and stuff. Yeah. You don't see anyone die. It's fine. Well, there's like that one scene in a much earlier episode, too, where I think it's the Warriors of Kyoshi, where there's like a... You know, the Fire Nation comes and starts attacking them, and then the trio just basically has to, like, sneak out and leave. But, like, the war is still ravaging on behind them. <laughs> like, you know, does Suki make it? Did she make it? <laughs> this is what I need to know, because I love her. But don't tell me. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's... I think that's it for me on on my end for this episode. Yeah, me too. Uh, I've got a, a few actors here, unless, Kel, do you have anything else? No, go for it. Okay. Um, just real quick, uh, Teo was played by a guy named Daniel Simonis, who his only credit that I could find that I was like, oh, I've seen that, is um, he was in a few episodes of Entourage. I don't know if you guys ever watched that. Yeah. But, um, I know of it, but I've never seen it. Johnny Drama, the older brother who whatever, doesn't get a job until, like, the final season, basically. His job (laughs) is on a show called Five Towns, and this actor plays his little brother on the pretend show that he is on. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, We also got a return of René Abergenois from, um, he, you know, what was it, The Great Divide, Mm -hmm. where he was totally wasted on a stupid episode. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, I did write down a few of his other credits that 
I didn't know. Uh, he started his Star Trek thing in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, the movie. Um, and he was in an episode of the Aladdin TV show. I watched oh, that. <laughs> well, he was in one, and his character name, he was a trader, a merchant, called Nefir Has Enough. <laughs> so there's that. Um, and actually, the, the most interesting credit in this, for me anyways, um, was the fire emissary, the guy who came up through the dumbwaiter. Yeah. Um, the actor's name is Christopher Tabori, and he's played a bounty hunter in a bunch of Star Wars video games. Um, he was Lord Regent Hiram Burroughs in um, Dishonored, the video game, which is also pretty excellent and worth your time if you haven't tried it. And he played Mercer in the original G.I. Joe animated movie from the 80s that was really dark and screwed up. And if you haven't seen it, it's also worth your time. I think it's on YouTube. I'm almost certain that movie. Yeah, it probably YouTube. is. Yeah. I, I don't think I've seen it since the 80s. It's really screwed up. It's like, <laughs> like you know how in G.I. Joe it's all about like espionage and, you know, terrorist attacks and stuff? Yeah, yeah. This, this isn't about any of that. This presupposes that um, Cobra Commander originates from some prehistoric society that ruled the earth when we were cavemen by um, utilizing technology that was all organic. So everything they have, all their weapons, all their guns, all their ships, their blimps, their red carpets that they walk down are made of horrifying bugs. Giant, monstrous <laughs> insects. And yeah, <laughs> it goes to weird places. Oh my god. It's like the Transformers movies. It is. The, the original animated one. That's also the, pretty yeah, dark. The, yeah, the animated Transformers movies. Oh my gosh. They kill Optimus Prime at the end of Act 1. Yep. Yep. Anyways. That's uh, that's all the actors I have here. Wow. Yeah. Who is René Apichonois? Was he the inventor? Yeah, yeah. He was the father. Okay, Sorry, okay, I didn't say yeah. that. You're right. Um, yeah, he was the dad with the blown off eyebrows. Um, yeah, I like this episode a lot, actually. I think of of the ones that we saw for this recording, I think I liked the fortune teller and this one the best. I guess. I mean, yeah, I guess the boring one was the best one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, not the boring one, I guess. You could just say just like not plot relevant one. It was a little boring. Yeah, the, the one off. It was a little boring. <laughs> I genuinely liked seeing them earthbend to guide lava. That was cool. That was, like, worth the entire episode, I felt like. That was very cool. And then whatever that formation that Aang makes with the wind and the lava, like, it's like a, a claw shell creeping up over the entire village. Yeah. yeah I, mean, I guess I was just charmed by all the character interactions in that particular one. Yeah. And Sokka yeah. just yelling about science at people and logic. Yeah, and, him and Mang, I felt like, were the stars of that episode. Well, and just like Aang trying to hit on Katara. You, <laughs> the whole so. We were really. Papaya. We were really light on Zuko in these episodes, though. And. We were, yeah. I love Zuko. <laughs> I need more Zuko. How were, dare they? I know, right? I honestly... I think that... The Fortune Teller is probably the, the best episode, objectively speaking. Um, I think my favorite parts 
were in Bato of the Water Tribe, even though that episode was a disaster. And the things I hated the most were also in that episode. <laughs> but if I had to pick out like my favorite moments from this bunch, then I think they were in that episode. I think the Northern Air Temple is probably what I considered objectively the best, simply because it was just much more nuanced and serious. And, it, it, and of course, it moves the plot forward. Um, but just kind of brought up all these sort of questions that you don't expect a kid's show to treat seriously, mm-hmm. I think. Um, a lot a, a lot of nuance to all the characters, particularly Teo's father, as we've said, doing horrible things for good reasons, generally. So I think that, objectively, is the best. But I think just in terms of just kind of sheer enjoyment, I think, mine would, I, think I would say that mine was the fortune teller. Because... Like, it, it didn't have anything important in it at all. Yeah, it, it didn't just, ask anything of you. Yeah. Just, just like, just, sit back and enjoy this thing. Just sit back and enjoy the, the cute character moments that everybody gets to have. And I was like, all right, that's fine. And because at this point, I like all the characters so much. Of course, I like this character. I mean, I've seen the series, like, a bazillion times. But I love all these characters so much that I'm just like, yeah, I'll just watch them being kind of funny. And, and you know, Sokka just running around yelling about science people. It's like... Oh, Sokka's my favorite. <laughs> Sokka's the best. I love Sokka so much. Um, it didn't receive much attention, but I feel like the the fact that the northern... We've now seen two air temples. Like, mm-hmm. that's yeah. also kind of significant. You know, the only other thing we've heard about the other ones up until this point is that Aang was supposed to go to the eastern air temple to train, but he ran off with Appa and got stuck in the ice. Um, and I just feel like this, this episode, the... Uh, Northern Air Temple episode, while it's not, like, maybe not objectively the best or whatever, it's, I feel like it's really important to Aang, not, not like, to the character of Aang, but, like, to our understanding of Aang. Like, this colors in his world a lot, Mm -hmm. you know, these are the places he spent his life, and we don't know it, like, at this point, much about it at all. Mm -hmm. Like, we we know what he left, and that's it. Just the question of, too, like, do you honor the past or respect the past to make way for progress is just a really big question to ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they they don't, like I said, they don't really give you an answer to it. I mean, Aang is like, you know, I'm cool with you guys living in my home now, but, you know, that's Aang. It's, right. No one else can say anything about the destruction of this temple. Well, so he's I, the only one left. Like... There's, you know, there's kind of a lot. Oh, there is one thing about Bato of the Water Tribe that I did make a note of. The one thing in that episode that I liked was that I think Sokka makes a really bad joke, and it's the return of the bad joke cough. Yes! In the background, like, Sokka makes a really bad joke, and someone in the background was just like... (coughs) And then Bato swings in with, you have your father's wit. Wit. (laughs) Like, Yes! I don't know if the bad joke cough ever turns up again, but I was like, oh, wait, wait, it's here, too. Yeah, I love that. That Like, that's such a, like, a delightful device of, like, it's way better than crickets chirping. Way better. It, it is, and it, it totally lampshades how terrible that joke is in a, in a really delightful way. It's just like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, and that's about it. That was really kind of the only thing in that whole episode that I liked at all. It was like, I don't like this episode. Like... <laughs> Baby Sokka mm-hmm. hugging his dad. <laughs> Ugh. I mean, I, I loved. 
and yeah, I mean, it's fine. Like it did, it, it didn't quite affect me as much as like seeing Zuko's baby Zuko's. Well, backstory. nothing in on Earth will ever affect me as much as seeing baby Zuko's backstory. <laughs> but but Sokka, I cry. Um, I got like teary during Sokka's flashbacks in that episode. And now Katara is the only one that we haven't had any flashbacks from. So that's interesting. Um, but do you guys have any spoilery thoughts? Um, we could. Well, mine are really kind of pertaining to the next two or three, so I can hold off on my thoughts. But if you have some, Mike. Yeah, honestly, we can skip it. Uh, wait until next time because I don't have a ton. Um, and maybe they'll be better, you know, once we've got the next three behind us. Yeah, when we finish the season, then we can kind of discuss some of the things that we had been kind of alluding to. Or sure. Yeah. So. Well, then, I just had one more question for you guys. I'm interested, briefly, because we've been talking for quite a long time, um, but I was wondering if you guys had any thoughts that you could share with me about how you think I will react to the season finale. Or, or the next, because we're going we're gonna, to, in our next podcast, we're going to wrap it up. There's three episodes left, and we're going to cover the final three in season one. Um, in our next podcast. And so I haven't watched ahead yet. I haven't seen them. I don't know. Do you guys think it's a good finale? Are you, you know, without getting spoilery, obviously, but I'm just curious as to what you guys think. I think it's a pretty strong finale. Um, and I think you'll get some stuff that you've been waiting for, for a lot of the season. Like there'll, there'll be, you know, like a cathartic kind of release of, Finally, so and so has showed up, and such and such a thing is happening. Are you, you know? telling me that Suki is coming back? Actually, no, <laughs> I'm not. I think you you obviously this is when you start to see more water bending because they finally finally get to the the pole, yes. yeah, the North and, Pole, and so. just seeing that what life is like in the North Pole as opposed to the South Pole is like it could have been enough to cover, like, an episode or two, you know what I mean? Like, without the yeah. extra plot going on. Just, like, there's a really interesting social dynamic that's not existent in the South Pole. So you've got two different cultures in the Water Tribes themselves. Um, I think it's a solid finale as well. I don't love it as much as I love the other two finales, <laughs> clearly. Um, and it, it's funny because... And I and I keep saying this to my friends who do watch the show that Avatar just gets better and better with every season. Like season one, I think is pretty solid. Like yeah, there were a couple of duds in this season, um, but overall, I think season one is fairly solid in terms of character development. And I think the the season finale is pretty good in that respect as well. But then I just kind of think of what's coming up ahead, and it just like what comes up ahead kind of blows everything out of the water. To the point where I kind of forget about season one. Yeah, I'm honestly having a little trouble remembering, like, what the finer details are. I, I remember the broad strokes of it and, like, sort of who comes out ahead and behind or whatever, but... We do get a lot more about the mythology of the Avatar, though. So, kind of some of the questions you might have about the Avatar and, and particularly the spiritual side of the Avatar, the Avatar figure is addressed much more directly in this finale, so... I think you'll have a lot of questions answered. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. So next time we are going to be doing the Waterbending Master, the Siege of the North Part 1, and the Siege of the North Part 2, which is the finale of Season 1. 
So that wraps up this week's installment of the Earth Kingdom Prairie Home Companion. Be sure to tune in next time for newbie recaps, know-it-all nerdery, and general squeeing all around. As always, you can subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or your podcast provider of choice, or visit us at our website, which is earthkingdomradio.com. And if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. You can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or Instagram. You can follow me, Mike, at Robo underscore Pants on Twitter. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJ Jones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Cattails by Kevin McLeod, and our logo was designed and created by our very own JJ. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. 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 Aang, Katara, and Sokka reach the Northern Air Temple with hopes that some air bandit... Blah, 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 blah.